has brought into stark relief the major role of international institutions in addressing and coordinating a global response to a global problem. What has been exposed is the magnitude of the consequences if we fail to ensure these institutions are fit for purpose, accountable to member states and free from undue influence. It is troubling that some countries are using the pandemic to undermine liberal democracy, to promote their own more authoritarian models. The disinformation we have seen contributes to a climate of fear and division when at a time like this what we need is cooperation and understanding. Let's be clear, disinformation during a pandemic will cost lives. G'day. Welcome to this special edition of the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And those comments you just heard were made by Senator Maurice Payne, Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs and Minister for Women. We will be back to hear more of her special address to the National Security College on Australia and the world in the time of COVID-19 right after this break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So here at the National Security College last night, which was Tuesday the 16th of June, we hosted Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Senator Maurice Payne, for a policy speech on Australia's national security interests in the time of COVID-19. What followed was a pretty powerful speech on the value of having independent multilateral organisations and global institutions that are free from undue influence and the danger of disinformation, especially during a pandemic. Now, we are hosting that speech here on the National Security Podcast, so it can be accessed by those who weren't able to watch the live stream. First, you'll hear the Minister deliver her speech, and after a quick break, you'll be able to hear the follow-on discussion that she had with Professor Rory Medcalf, a former guest here on the NatSec Pod, and the head of the National Security College. Let's listen to that right now. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me also begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, 
present uh, and emerging. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you, Rory, and everyone here from the University and the National Security College. Uh, let me also warmly acknowledge uh, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Francis Adamson, uh, who is here with us tonight. Uh, we have not seen each other in person uh, physically very often in uh, many months, and uh, it's great to have you here, Francis. Thank you. Uh, and also the students and, uh, and other guests who are here this evening. Brian is right. The National Security College does an excellent job of helping to develop the careers of up-and-coming officials in the national security and foreign affairs fields. And I can't think of a better audience here, literally, for the topic that I'm speaking about tonight and, of course, uh, those who are here virtually. And to all of you who are watching online, thank you for tuning in. As I'll be discussing tonight... I, along with uh, most of you, I suspect, have been doing much of my communications through digital means in recent months. If there is a silver lining in foreign affairs to the COVID challenges, it might be that online communication has begun to fulfil its potential as a tool of modern diplomacy. But first, to some history. Health diplomacy began in 1851, with the first International Sanitary Conference in Paris, which was convened to harmonise European quarantine standards for cholera and thereby facilitate smoother trade. It was not an outstanding success. Not all delegates agreed that cholera was contagious with some arguing that it was rather due to atmospheric, climatic and soil conditions. One delegate even declared that the best defences against cholera were courage, resignation, spiritual calmness and faith. Quarantine, these doctors and diplomats argued, was therefore pointless. After six months of debate, 15 of the 23 delegates voted that cholera should indeed be subject to quarantine regulations. However, this majority accomplished nothing because just one of the states, Sardinia, went on to ratify the convention. We've come a long way in health diplomacy. In particular, the Spanish flu, which killed an estimated 40 to 50 million people between 1918 and 1920, galvanised much greater international cooperation on health, indeed culminating in the creation in 1948 of the World Health Organisation. When the next pandemic arrived in 1957, the world was much better prepared. There was a global surveillance system in place and a network of laboratories that could track the spread of the disease and share research, even if those developments were nascent by today's standards. However, since 1918, the world's population has more than quadrupled, become more densely concentrated in very big cities and become overwhelmingly more interconnected, including through prolific air travel. And all of this has had literally dramatic consequences for the spread of communicable diseases. Just as we learnt so much from the Spanish flu, we need to learn today from COVID-19 to improve our systems for this much more complex world. 
COVID-19 is a shared crisis, a reminder that many problems are best solved or indeed can only be solved through cooperation. At the heart of successful international cooperation is the concept that each country shares, rather than yields, a portion of its sovereign decision-making. And in return, each gets something from it that is greater than their contribution. Australia has real strengths to bring to the international table. Our values, such as fairness, equality and openness, but also our well-earned reputation for a practical approach to solving problems. We get things done by proposing principled solutions and then implementing them collaboratively. In this spirit, we have continued our strong record of constructive multilateral engagement by seeking an independent review of COVID-19, advocating that this is in the best interests of all nations. We have a strong mandate for such a review after the World Health Assembly passed an historic resolution calling for an impartial, independent and comprehensive evaluation into the lessons learned from the global response to improve prevention and preparedness, and also an investigation to identify the zoonotic source of the virus and the route of introduction to the human population. A record 145 countries acted as co-sponsors for the resolution. It was truly a global moment of consensus. Of course, COVID-19 has been a tragic experience for many people and continues to be so for many more. And our thoughts are with the families and the loved ones of hundreds of thousands of people who have died, with millions who have lost jobs and livelihoods. Yet, there is much amongst it all that is positive in the world's response to the pandemic. Overwhelmingly, people have complied with tough but necessary social distancing and isolation requirements, putting public safety first based on the advice of health authorities. And Australians, as Professor Smith referred to, particularly have led the way here. Governments, whether centre-left or centre-right, have looked beyond ideology overwhelmingly to find solutions for their people. Again, Australia does stand as an example of a pragmatic and practical approach that has saved lives and helped to protect livelihoods. We've also seen admirable instances, instances of the international community coming together to share information and resources to assist in the repatriation of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of citizens, and to work together to save lives and to rebuild economies. I can actually speak from direct experience about the value of cooperation and communication at this time of crisis. I am meeting in virtual mode almost every day with other foreign ministers and leaders from across the globe, sharing ideas, approaches and strategies. Last week, we held our ninth call of the Canada-led Ministerial Coordination Group on COVID-19 with Indonesia, Morocco, Peru, Singapore and South Korea. 
I have had discussions with Five Eyes counterparts, Southeast Asian counterparts, Pacific counterparts. I've been involved in multiple meetings of female foreign ministers and ministers for women. In all of these conversations, colleagues are genuinely interested in sharing the experiences of the challenge that has been thrown at us all. Our discussions are not theoretical or philosophical. They're very real. They're grounded in finding ways to cooperate to support our citizens during unprecedented times. COVID-19 has shown that our international order is as important as ever. There is need for reform in several areas, but the pandemic has brought into stark relief the major role of international institutions in addressing and coordinating a global response to a global problem across multiple lines of effort. What has been exposed is the magnitude of the consequences if we fail to ensure these institutions are fit for purpose, accountable to member states and free from undue influence. Not surprisingly, the pandemic has drawn attention to the strengths, the weaknesses of the UN system. There's been intense scrutiny of the World Health Organization's response. Australia has, for many years, been an active and pragmatic voice in the WHO and on global health cooperation. Our early co-sponsorship of and shared role in negotiating the text of the EU-led resolution is consistent with that approach. And since the WHA meeting on the 19th of May, we have been working with partners and the WHO to build on the successful outcome of that meeting. In the wake of this devastating health crisis, Australia wants to see a stronger WHO that is more independent and transparent. We cannot let the vital and practical work that the WHO does on the ground be overshadowed by questions about the approach of its headquarters in Geneva. Frankly, there is no other institution that can marshal collective efforts to improve health security across the globe. Through our role on the WHO Executive Board, our proactive participation in a range of regional and global health fora, Australia will present tangible proposals and initiatives to ensure that the global health architecture emerges stronger from COVID-19. It matters to Australia. We've seen how global public health action or inaction can affect Australians at home and abroad. So there's a strong incentive for Australia to show leadership on making the WHO as effective as possible. The COVID-19 experience reflects a much wider issue. Our multilateral institutions are experiencing unprecedented strain from a new era of strategic competition from shifts in global power, from technological disruption and complex security, health and economic challenges. In October last year, well before COVID-19 emerged, Prime Minister Morrison commissioned an audit by my department of Australia's engagement in key multilateral institutions. The Prime Minister's speech at the Lowy Institute entitled In Our Interests was notable in framing how Australia would respond to a threat such as a pandemic brought to our shores from abroad. He said, and I quote, Australia cannot be an indifferent bystander to these events that impact our livelihoods, our safety and our sovereignty. 
We must, as we have done previously, cultivate, marshal and bring our influence to bear to protect and promote our national interests. These principles have guided our response to this international crisis. The audit, completed by my department, took stock of where and why Australia is engaging and how we can best target our efforts to support our interests. It affirmed that multilateral organisations, especially international standard-setting bodies, creates rules that are vital to Australia's security, interests, values and prosperity. Those bodies regulate international cooperation in key sectors of our economy, including civil aviation, maritime transport, intellectual property, telecommunications, agriculture. They promote universal values and play critical roles in responding to emerging global challenges, from the regulation of cybersecurity and maintaining a peaceful outer space to outbreaks of Ebola and COVID-19. The audit also recognised the pressure these bodies are under and that, at times, their performance has struggled to deliver on their agreed mandates. Notwithstanding the limitations identified by the audit, Australia's interests are not served by stepping away and leaving others to shape the global order for us. Isolationism would also cut us off from the world on which we are so dependent for our own security and prosperity as well in the world's most dynamic region, the Indo-Pacific. We must stand up for our values and bring our influence to bear in these institutions to protect and promote our national interests and to preserve the open character of international institutions based on universal values and transparency. Australia will continue to work to ensure global institutions are fit for purpose, relevant, contemporary, accountable to member states, free from undue influence and have an appropriately strong focus on the Indo-Pacific. We will continue to support reform efforts in the United Nations and its agencies to improve transparency, accountability and effectiveness. This is foreign policy designed to use Australian influence and agency to shape a safer world and to make us safer at home. We will target our efforts to preserve three fundamental parts of the multilateral system. The rules that protect sovereignty, preserve peace and curb excessive use of power and enable international trade and investment. The international standards related to health and pandemics, to transport, telecommunications and other issues that underpin the global economy and which will be vital to a post-COVID-19 economic recovery. And thirdly, the norms that underpin universal human rights, gender equality and the rule of law. Moreover, we will work to ensure that the development of new rules and norms to address emerging challenges is consistent with enduring values and principles. This is particularly important in the case of critical technologies, including cyber and artificial intelligence, critical minerals and outer space. The Australian Government 
is committed to a coordinated, effective and ambitious pursuit of our priorities in the global system. We want to see talented Australians working in the international system, where they can contribute their expertise, their integrity, their pragmatism, attributes for which we are renowned and which are needed now more than ever by the international community. We want to deepen our cooperation with our like-minded and regional partners on shared goals to shape better outcomes, especially for the Indo-Pacific. Effective multilateralism conducted through strong and transparent institutions serves Australia's interests. Multilateralism for the sake of it is rather pointless. Where meetings and forums fail to reflect our values or deliver outcomes that align with our interests at home, our challenge is to ensure the institutions and our active engagement within them delivers for Australia and Australians. And to do this, Australia must better target our role in the global system. Australia's role in seeking an independent review of COVID-19 is a prime example of this active engagement in the international interest. Well-functioning global institutions lead to improved outcomes for the citizens of states that act cooperatively. One relevant example is the sharing of information. In a connected world, governments will be able to make better decisions for their people if they have clear, fast, reliable information across borders. And as we have learnt from COVID-19, almost every hour counts in the, in the age of global hyper-connectivity. Our global institutions, including WHO in this context, must serve as unimpeachable repositories of information that governments can rely upon to take decisions to protect their citizens. And they must serve as bulwarks against disinformation. Let's be clear, disinformation during a pandemic will cost lives. Concerningly, we have seen disinformation pushed and promoted around the coronavirus pandemic and around some of the social pressures that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. The European Commission issued a report last week that concluded foreign actors and countries, in particular Russia and China, had carried out targeted disinformation campaigns seeking to undermine democratic debate and exacerbate social polarisation and improve their own image in the COVID-19 context. A day later, Twitter disclosed over 32,000 accounts as state-linked information operations which the company attributed to Russia, to China and to Turkey. For our part, it is troubling that some countries are using the pandemic to undermine liberal democracy, to promote their own more authoritarian models. As Prime Minister Morrison said in March of this year, some months ago now, there are some who believe liberal democracies and free societies cannot cope with these sorts of challenges. We will prove them wrong here in Australia. We have gone on to do that. I have also been very clear in rejecting as disinformation the warnings of the Chinese government that tourists and students should reconsider coming here because of racism. 
I can say emphatically that Australia will welcome students and visitors from all over the world, regardless of race, of gender, of nationality. Our law enforcement agencies can, will, do respond to individual crimes, and we will continue to move beyond this pandemic, true to our status as the world's most successful multicultural society. The Prime Minister and the government have repeatedly called out racist behaviour. He has gone to considerable lengths to remind our nation that Chinese Australians returning from China in thousands in the early period of COVID-19 provided this country with one of the greatest defences against the spread of the virus. And he has thanked them for that commitment. And I reiterate those thanks. The disinformation we have seen contributes to a climate of fear and division when at a time like this what we need is cooperation and understanding. At the weekend, Australia co-signed with 131 other countries and observers a Latvian-led statement in the UN warning that COVID-19 had, and I quote, created conditions that enable the spread of disinformation, fake news and doctored videos to ferment violence, to divide communities. We committed in that statement to fighting the so-called infodemic. I can assure you that Australia will resist and counter efforts at disinformation. We will do so through facts and transparency, underpinned by liberal democratic values that we will continue to promote at home and abroad. The principle of international cooperation also applies to assisting other countries through the COVID-19 crisis. In Australia's case, that means working with partners in the Indo-Pacific, providing support and development assistance to respond to the challenges of the pandemic and, importantly, the economic fallout we know is with us. In doing so, in these partnerships, we cement our friendships, we buttress our regional security by helping to maintain stability and prosperity in our own neighbourhood, and we maintain our reputation as a good partner and a positive contributor in the world. To that end, we're pivoting our partnerships in support of the health security, the economic recovery and the stability of our region. We have released our Partnerships for Recovery strategy, pivoting the development program to support the critical medical and humanitarian needs of our Pacific family of Timor-Leste and other partner countries in Southeast Asia. This will help to support the health responses of our neighbours to deliver us essential medical and social services. We have supported our Pacific partners by providing PPE and testing equipment and technical expertise, including through the WHO's Pacific office in Suva to keep infection rates as low as possible. We are working with our partners in the Pacific Island Forum to maintain a humanitarian and essential services pathway to enable the essential movement of personnel and critical supplies around the region. Australia has put in place travel exemptions for Pacific Island citizens travelling home from third countries. The pathway brings together protocols, quarantine measures to facilitate those movements of goods and essential workers and people across the region. I sincerely appreciate the support of the Tuvalu Foreign Minister, Simon Coffey, 
and the PIF Secretary-General, Dame Meg Taylor, in making a joint statement about this on the 1st of June. And I look forward to meeting, indeed, tomorrow uh, with my Pacific ministerial counterparts on the Action Group for the Humanitarian Pathway to continue its implementation. As the distribution of wealth and power has shifted, Australia has been deepening our ties to nations who share our vision of a region and a globe that promotes peace and prosperity for all under an international order built around rules. The unexpected body blow to international stability delivered by COVID-19 reaffirms this approach, strengthening our resolve to build a network of nations who hold these values and interests and to do more in the building of international cooperation. We announced our comprehensive strategic partnership with India this month in a virtual summit. Not the first for Australia, but the first for Prime Minister Modi. And I bet that's not a first anyone else gets very often. The engagement of the world's most populous democracy and a rising economic giant will have real practical outcomes for Australia, improving cooperation on matters ranging from cyber, defence logistics to innovation and education. This landmark agreement is built on and framed by our respective interests as democracies in the Indo-Pacific. The COVID-19 crisis has given democracy a contemporary stage on which to demonstrate its strength. And Australia, with our openness, accountability, respect for individual human rights, has given to our people the confidence that we are all working together, even in the midst of this global crisis. Democracies are imperfect. But with the airing of disagreements, even with the acknowledgement of mistakes from time to time, they can be stronger for it because self-governed people ultimately have trust in a common mission. That's a principle to which Australia must and will continue to adhere. Seeking a review, working with counterparts, engaging with a sound multilateral process in the World Health Assembly has been a perfect demonstration of what Australia is about in 2020. Playing an active role, exerting our influence, and using our capacity in alignment with our values, while being consistent, clear and transparent about our objectives. There were those who said that by speaking out by seeking a review. We made ourselves a target and brought upon ourselves an unnecessary cost for a cause that would have been championed anyway by others whose size and stature made them more suitable standard bearers. There are times to pursue quiet diplomacy behind the scenes, but there are also times to voice our concerns and persuade others of the need for a course of action. By all means, we can be small in our thinking, timid in purpose, and risk-averse. Or alternatively, 
and in my view, vitally necessary, we can be confident, we can believe in Australia's role in the world and prioritise Australia's sovereignty and Australians' long-term interests by making the difficult decisions and choices. That's what leading and governing must be about. To those who have said, well, this would have all happened anyway, let me say that nothing just happens anyway. So that's where we might take a quick break and we will be back with the discussion between Senator Payne and Professor Medcalf in a few minutes right here on the National Security Podcast. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Minister, thank you very much for that uh, very substantial and forthright and wide-ranging speech. Uh, I think there were some powerful messages there, also perhaps a few surprises, which I'd really like to get to in our conversation. There's lots that we can talk about this evening, but I'd be interested to start with your focus on international institutions. Um, Some will say the speech marks something of a departure in the position of the government on international institutions, on multilateralism. You mentioned yourself the Prime Minister's speech at the Lowy Institute last year, and of course much of the media commentary on that fixated on a line about negative globalism and wondered what that meant. So I just wonder if you could talk about whether your government is rediscovering multilateralism and also how you're going to measure success in this endeavour? I think that uh, uh, rather than perhaps the, the, um, the uh, parameters that you've drawn there, Rory, what the uh, multilateral audit has enabled us to do and uh, in the process of the audit looked at over 100 areas of examination, institutions and processes, uh, those sorts of, uh, of areas... What it has enabled us to do is a contemporary evaluation for Australia uh, of uh, the current international environment and the role that multilateral institutions play within it. When the Prime Minister made his observations uh, at uh, at the Lowy Institute, uh, he talked about the concerns that we had in terms of prosecuting case for our national interests. That has underpinned everything we have done. So, in fact, this is a logical and lateral progression. He instituted the multilateral audit. He asked my department and uh, acknowledged the secretary and the team that led an extraordinary body of work. He asked my department to produce that. Uh, It's been closely examined at the most senior levels of the government. And what we do know is that uh, the international institutions that we're talking about 
are extremely important for Australia in terms of advancing our national interests and uh, promoting and protecting our values, whether it is about uh, the international environment as it pertains to, to telecommunications, to aviation, to agriculture, to a vast range of other areas. We could talk across all 100 yeah. of them. Uh, all of those have been very powerful reminders uh, of the value of that cooperation. Uh, we couldn't have made that assessment without the multilateral audit, and so I think it flows very logically. Just building on that, uh, it's a deepening challenge, if you like, to protect and advance that, that order. Um, what is your sense of whether, I guess, Australia and your department in particular is, is resourced for that task? And, and I guess, what action will there be taken to target resources uh, at this challenge? Uh, well, we're uh, in the very early phase of having reviewed the audit itself. And so let me, let me um, predicate my remarks by, uh, by saying that. Uh, but importantly, there is a vast amount of work that occurs on a daily basis in our posts across the world, and, <clears throat> and not just in the key multilateral institutional centres like Geneva or Paris or, or New York, but literally across the world that contribute to our engagement. Uh, so making sure that we are targeting that, that we are focusing that, uh, that where, as I said in my remarks, we can engage Australians as well in those systems uh, is a key part of this. So um, we will continue to review that in terms of the demands that it places on, uh, on my organisation and, uh, and on government. But uh, the thing that I have learned, one of the things that I have learned about uh, out of this is how much of the work that we are already doing uh, is very much uh, responsive to the promotion, as you would expect, uh, of our national interests in this context. Well, it's, it's uh, useful to hear that. I think at, at this university we, uh, we encourage our graduates to look for careers in international organisations as, well as, as, as well as in, uh, in government <clears throat> agencies and departments. So it sounds like fertile ground. But uh, look, I want to move to the, I guess, the challenges of the international environment that you articulated in your speech. I mean, it's, it's no secret that some of the most powerful nations in the world are not as committed to the, uh, the agenda of uh, international institutions and international cooperation that I think your speech has laid out. And <clears throat> although your speech has referred in places to China and Russia, and I'll come back to China later in my conversation if that's, um, if that's okay, but I'd like to start with the United States instead. And I want to go to the question of, I think you, you, you say in your speech, you talk about the risks of stepping away from engagement with institutions, stepping away from engagement with the order, leaving others to shape the global order for us if we do that. And of course, uh, in the example of the World Health Organization and some other areas as well, uh, it's pretty clear we've got a United States that has been doing some stepping away. What challenge does that pose for Australia and what scope is there for Australia to shape our allies' choices in that regard? I think the first thing I would say is that the United States or any other country, frankly, uh, will make their own decisions about their engagement. Uh, and it would be hypocritical in the extreme for Australia to say otherwise, given um, the premise of my argument is based in advancing our national interests and on our values. So other countries will make their own decisions about what is in their national interests and what reflects their values. Um, but importantly, uh, and a thread that I have tried to draw in, uh, in my remarks tonight, uh, is that in our engagement across the, uh, across the international environment, uh, we have to be building new uh, and new relationships and reinforcing relationships because we are seeing 
uh, a much more different, a much uh, different strategic uh, environment in which we have to work. So that means making sure that the partnerships which we already have are reinforced. It means making new ones. And so some of the, I'll call them mini-lateral mm. groupings that have emerged, regular groupings and engagements amongst counterparts and amongst countries that we have seen, and Prime Minister has participated, I have participated, Francis is participating uh, in these. Some of those are delivering extremely strong relationships and investments uh, in our, of our time uh, for, for this particular COVID-19 focus, but I am confident that they will go beyond that. Uh, I, would like to, I would also say that uh, in relation to uh, contributions to uh, international health and, and particularly world health security, the one thing that the United States has said and made clear to, to me and others who have, uh, who have raised these issues is it's, uh, their, their concerns are directed at the WHO. They're not, in fact, a diminution in their eyes of the importance of contributing strongly uh, in world health security. Uh, and they have made very clear they, they intend to continue to do that. Uh, we have advanced the case for a strong interest in the Indo-Pacific uh, in that regard, as you might expect. Uh, but um, that continuing commitment uh, is of great interest, uh, of course, to us, uh, of course, to our region, and of course, to uh, other organisations that may end up working with uh, the United States. Thank you. I will come to China now, because, again, uh, it seems to be very challenging to prosecute this kind of agenda of international cooperation during a time precisely when there are these great power tensions uh, that the world is experiencing. And Australia itself is clearly in a very difficult phase in our relations with China at, at present. Uh, there are a range of uh, what appear to be coercive actions uh, against Australia related to trade, travel advice. Some commentators would link the treatment of uh, an Australian uh, who's receiving a capital sentence in China. Again, it's been linked to this wider, this wider pattern. Uh, the question is, this may not be a situation of Australia's own making, but it's very difficult to see what sort of end is in sight for this phase of the relationship. So how does Australia pursue the ambitious agenda of international cooperation while also dealing with um, what appears to be pretty relentless pressure uh, from China? Uh, I don't think it's a question of how we do it. Um, we must do it. And that's what we should be doing as a government. And that's what we are, we are focused on doing. We are able to uh, prosecute the case um, that I've advanced uh, this evening and uh, advance our interests uh, focused on um, the values that underpin those and, and what Australians expect us to do. We are able to do that in the broader international environment, but also deal with what is a very important relationship. It's an important relationship to Australia, but it's also an important relationship to China. Uh, it is one which is, uh, is based in mutual benefit and mutual respect, but there will be differences, and those differences need to be addressed uh, constructively between us. We have, I think, advanced the case uh, on issues that are currently matters of difference in a very calm and consistent and considered way. Uh, we have based entirely everything we have said or done in terms of our national interests and not in an inflammatory or unreasonable way. Uh, we will continue to work through that. Uh, I'll continue to engage closely with our teams uh, in uh, the embassy in Beijing and in uh, consulates all over China and, and continue to work closely with the department in doing that and so will the Prime Minister uh, to make sure that we are being very clear 
about the things that are important to us in the relationship and the things that are important to us in terms of our national interests. I'm going to keep on the... on not just on China, but again on external power relations and the way those, I guess, uh, affect Australia's interests domestically. You mentioned in your remarks the topic of disinformation. And you mentioned, for example, the 30,000 plus Twitter yeah. accounts that, surprise, surprise, turned out to be, to be bots, uh, in trying to influence opinion inside democracies, uh, whether it's from China or other actors. To what extent do you see foreign disinformation campaigns as operating uh, inside Australia or contrary to Australian interests? And what lines of effort can you see from Australia as being necessary to deter or, or disrupt those? I think I used the words uh, hyperconnectivity uh, in uh, in my remarks tonight, and um, by definition, in an era of hyperconnectivity, uh, it is very hard to say what is uh, specifically here in Australia and and what is what could be deemed to be offshore. So uh, we must be, and we are alert to both. Uh, and I think the work that has been done um, uh, by by ASPE uh, and by others uh, in uh, in the in the release that Twitter made this week, uh, last week, has been extremely important uh, in calling out, shining light on these sorts of behaviours. Uh, and that's why I talk about transparency. That's what I talk about frank engage that's why I talk about frank engagement. Uh, because uh, they are the safest and the most secure forms of, of communication. Somebody asked me the other day, how can you decide what to believe at the moment? I actually saw uh, during the, uh, the beginnings of uh, the most intense discussions here in Australia about response and public behaviour and social restrictions. You know, what do you do? Who do you, who do you listen to? I saw some extraordinary things on social media. I'm sure we all did. Extraordinary. How you can tell if you've got COVID. Uh, how you can tell if the person on the train beside you has, has COVID, which apparently you could do according to Facebook by looking at them. Um, these sorts of, of assertions and relying on clear and uh, authoritative sources is one very important approach uh, to this. And I think our chief medical officer, as, I, uh, as I've said before, uh, was a very, very powerful messenger in Australia uh, for uh, the important steps that needed to be taken. Uh, but where that is sought to be compromised and traduced and uh, reduced to disinformation, where, where what, needs, what needs to be produced is, is reduced in that way. Um, that is very, very dangerous. And we have seen it exacerbate um, tensions. We have seen it exacerbate uh, fear uh, in countless countries around the world. So that's why we are very, very focused on its importance. It's why we worked with Latvia, with 130 other countries, on that statement uh, of the infodemic, uh, which is a newly coined phrase I was not previously familiar with, but the infodemic. And it's why people like um, uh, Toby Feakin, our, our cyber, cyber ambassador, critical technologies ambassador, it's why the job that he does is so important for Australia and his work with so many countries in our region and more broadly also vital. So those partnerships where countries who are responsible uh, and don't engage in disinformation and who call it out, those alliances, those partnerships are also really important because bringing that together and saying we won't put up with this, we will not tolerate this in our country is absolutely vital in our response. 
So that's where we're going to leave the discussion, and as I'm sitting here editing the audio, I can see the Twitter feed popping off with articles being posted by Reuters, The Guardian, Sydney Morning Herald, and a multitude of news outlets in Asia. No doubt we will be reading about that speech and maybe even hearing some responses from the Minister's international counterparts for some time yet. So thanks to listening to this episode of the National Security Podcast. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, you can get in touch with us on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak directly to me using at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. So that's two special episodes in a row now, and saving any breaking crisis in the meantime, which, you know, let's face it, seems more than likely than not in 2020, we will be returning to our regular programming soon, and we hope to chat to you then on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.